Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Spirit through your word today. Help us to listen and pay attention and to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to start with a question. Why are you here this morning? You know, I often think it'd be kind of uh, interesting. It'd be fun if we could actually go around and ask people and uh, see what people said. Don't you think that'd be interesting? Yeah, good. Okay, let's do that. Um, who would like to uh, go first? I'd like to know why you're here. Jude, thank you. I've not primed anybody. To worship God. Okay. Any other reasons why you're here? They can be... I want the real reasons. Why are you really here? Okay. I'm playing the drums. Okay. Anyone else? Yep. See somebody over here? Habit. Habit. Okay. Anybody else? Why are you here this morning? I want to know. Okay. Over here. All right. Yep. To be in the presence of God and his people. Okay. Anybody else? Because I want to be. All right. Okay. I'll ask you later on. Lots of, uh, lots of good answers. I suspect one. Did you want one? No. Oh, yeah, over here. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to know why the teenagers are here. Um, anybody brave enough to say why you're here this morning? Here comes the microphone. Because I chose to come. Very good. You know, I, I suspect that uh, knowing you, as I do a little, there are probably about as many reasons uh, why you're here as people who are here. And I think perhaps um, if it wasn't being put on the spot with the microphone, um, and, and maybe if you're really brave enough, I suspect some of you are here for reasons that maybe you wouldn't want um, broadcast. I mean, maybe you're here because somebody made you come. Maybe your mum or dad said, you've got to get in the car, let's go to Ascension. Maybe you're here to please your spouse. Maybe you've come to see some friends. There are all kinds of reasons, and thank you for those that shared, for your honesty, a good cross-section Maybe you've come to worship God with this community of believers. Maybe you're hungry to hear from God. All sorts of reasons. I think many people come to church because they are looking for Jesus. Now, they may not express it that way. They may not even think of it that way. But they are looking for meaning or for something or someone to help them in their lives. Well, in our gospel reading this morning, we encounter a group of people who'd gone to Capernaum looking for Jesus. John tells us, verse 24, and you might want to follow this gospel passage. You don't have to, but I am going to be referring to the text this morning. John tells us in verse 24, the next day, when the people who remained after the feeding of the 5,000 saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Well, they soon found him uh, on the other side of the lake, and they asked him in verse 25, when did you get here? Or, in other words, how in the world did you get here? We couldn't find you on the other side of the lake, and we didn't see you get in a boat. What's going on? Now, Jesus could have uh, simply answered their question and told them when he got there. I got here in the night. 
Or he could have told them how he got there. Actually, I walked across the water. But instead, he challenges them about what they are doing there. Why were they looking for Jesus? It seems not for the best reasons. They had come to find him not to worship him, not to listen to what he would teach them, teach them but because, verse 26, they'd enjoyed the free food the day before. That's why they'd gone looking for him. Still, once they arrived there in front of Jesus, they got to listen to what he said. And likewise, for everyone here this morning, whatever reason you've come, like it or not, you get confronted by God's Word and God's people, both of which can be rather discomforting. The people you find here this morning may bother you because, well, they don't always behave in the way they should or you would like them to. And God's Word may bother you because it may not say quite what you had in mind or were hoping for. But ultimately, if we will engage with God in this worshiping community and listen and come near to Jesus, He will transform our lives, however uncomfortable that may prove to be. Well, I asked you at the beginning why you were here. Well, Jesus knows exactly why you are here. As the Scriptures teach us, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And just as those are at the lakeside, Jesus cuts through any superficial reasons why they or we had come looking for Jesus. Whether the folks then were looking for another miracle or for some fresh bread or for something else, and whatever the reasons we may be here this morning, Jesus looks beneath the surface and he challenges us to look at the underlying longings of our souls that need to be addressed today. And that's really the invitation to you this morning. Will you do that? Will you come with me as we enter into this passage and lay before God these longings of your soul? Jesus says to them in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. And it's amazing how much we actually do precisely that which Jesus tells us not to. How much we do work for our bodies while neglecting our souls. Just think of all the commercials that bombard us every uh, turn, prompting us ways that we can pamper our bodies or feed our stomachs or entertain ourselves with this or that or the other. We labor massively for things that don't last rather than for the things that do. Of course, deep down, I'm sure most of us here know only too well that material things don't satisfy our deepest longings. Of course they don't. Indeed, they cannot. But in this conversation about bread, though they don't really get it, the crowd realize that Jesus is talking about something very important, something that really matters. 
But what does it look like to be working for food that endures for eternal life? The crowds ask in verse 27, what must we do to perform the works of God? I wonder, how would you answer that question? Don't worry, I'm I'm not going to come around with the microphone. But what might it look like? What must we do to perform the works of God? Would it be works of charity, praying, reading the Bible, caring for the homeless, visiting the sick, trying to be good? Well, those are all very fine things for us to be doing, but that's not what Jesus says in answer to their question. Actually, Jesus effectively takes their question apart and changes it around completely. And I want to really home in on verse 29. And the first thing we see is that Jesus corrects the subject of their sentence. I'm not absolutely brilliant at grammar, but, you know, we're going to try and uh, parse this a little bit. They say, what should we be doing? They're the subject of the sentence. What should we be doing? But Jesus tells them that it's all about God and what he is doing. This, Jesus says, is the work of God. He is the right subject, not them. The main thing that we need to be working on, those longings of our souls, getting right with God, working for food that will last, is actually, first and foremost, something which God does for us. Well, then Jesus continues, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the work of God, it seems, has something to do with our ability to believe in him. And it is God himself who enables us to believe. God works in us that which we can't do it by ourselves. God even gives us the desire and the ability to trust him. Now, of course, he doesn't force that on us. Rather, he makes that available to us. Well, let's stay a little bit longer in verse 29. After correcting the subject of the sentence to be about God, not them, having changed the direct object of the sentence from being about the work they should do to being about the work that God does, Jesus then turns to the verb, and he's got some correctives there. What should we be doing, they asked. The doing, the verb, the working, is not really our work, but God's. All we do is offer back to God what he's done for us, in us, and through us. Jesus is God's gift to us. Even our faith is God's gift to us, which we offer back to him. In another context, French philosopher and social activist Simon Weil said, don't just do something, stand there. (laughs) Which is a bit difficult, really, isn't it, for us to uh, get our heads around. I think most of us are naturally doers. We're not very good at not doing I mean, like, for example, if you go and visit someone who's ill, there's a natural tendency to want to do something. And if you're English, it usually involves making a cup of tea. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes there's nothing we can do except be there. And when it comes to our own well-being, when it comes to our own spiritual health and the state of our souls... There is absolutely nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. Rather, 
we must learn to be those who receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And yet, that question, what must I do, is one that crops up time and time again in conversations that I have with people, and it crops up in the Bible in many places. A rich young man comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's great. I, I love that story. I mean, the guy's basically seems perfect, and Jesus asked him to do the one thing he's not willing to do. He might as well have asked him to grow a few inches. He just didn't get it. Or there's a prison guard following an earthquake that opens up all the cells. He's terrified. He says to St. Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And the answer they give was, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And the crowds on the day of Pentecost, seeing what had happened and listening to Peter preach, asked, what shall we do? And of course, the answer there was to repent and be baptized. Every time what's needed to be done concerns the heart. Our encounter with Jesus and those that had come across the lake ends with their response. They'd asked what they should do. And Jesus had told them of the wonderful work that God does for them, a work they can't do. They've been invited to do the only thing they can do, which they do in partnership with God, which is to believe, which is to trust, just as the people of Israel were invited to do in the wilderness when Jesus provided the manna each day. Now, you might think, that having heard all that, they would have said, thank you, or wow, help us to trust you. Please work that in us, that, that which you just said. Or even like the man who once said to Jesus when asked if he thought Jesus could heal his son, I believe, help my unbelief. Anything like that would have been a great response. But that's not what they said at all. Instead, they say, so, what are you going to do to prove yourself to us? What will you do to deserve that we trust you? The crowds ask for more. More signs, more proof, more miracles. Seeing is believing. I won't believe it till I see it. Prove it. Except in God's economy, believing so often precedes seeing. Faith comes first. Sight may come later. We walk by faith and not by sight. Although, frankly, this crowd had seen Jesus just feed 5,000 people the day before over the lake. But no, that wasn't enough for them. So now they demand that Jesus jump higher, run faster, do something greater, bigger, better, impress us more. And they refer back to Moses, thinking they can get one over him with that, as if that makes their refusal to trust more spiritual. What sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors at the manor in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's pitiful, really. They just display how much they've missed the point. 
And so Jesus responds by explaining what the true bread of heaven is all about. He tells them in verse 32 that the true bread from heaven and the true giver of that bread are not what they think. The true bread is not bread for their physical needs like the manna was each day, but rather it is Jesus himself, the bread to satisfy the hungry heart and soul. And the true giver in the wilderness wasn't actually Moses, it was the father of Jesus. Bishop J.C. Ryle, writing in the 1850s on this passage, said, Alas, there are no limits to man's dullness, prejudice, and unbelief in spiritual matters. It is a striking fact that the only thing which our Lord is said to have marveled at during his earthly ministry was man's unbelief. You know, I found that when you challenge someone to do good or, or work hard, you're very unlikely to offend them. They'll say, yes, that's good, I like that. But if you really want to cause offense, try suggesting to someone that they believe in Jesus, that they rely not on their own goodness and hard work, but instead that they put their trust in God. I don't know what it was in those people that made them think that all they needed was more evidence so that then they would believe. But, you know, people do the same today, demanding signs and proofs and incontrovertible evidence. And I have to say, I, I sometimes find myself agreeing with the way Bishop Ryle, to quote him again, put it, that the plain truth is that it is want of heart, not want of evidence that keeps people back from Christ. It is want of heart, not want of evidence. The Jews had signs and evidences and proofs of Christ's Messiahship in abundance, but they would not see them. Just so, I'm quoting here, just so many a professed unbeliever of our day has plenty of evidence around him, but he will neither look at it nor examine it, so true it is that none are so blind as those that will not see. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments, what matters is not just what Jesus can do for you, but rather who Jesus is. Only if you are prepared to be confronted by that in a new way can you begin to understand what he can really do for you. And here in the last verse before us, Jesus tells them plainly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Oh, how often we strive for that which does not satisfy and work for that which perishes. How often we study and seek and search for satisfaction and fulfillment when all the time Jesus is right in front of us saying, I'm the bread of life. Come to me. Trust me. Feed on me. But how? How do we do this? Well, to obtain this gift of this, of this bread, this life, the life that satisfies and fills our deepest longings, we have to be open to receive this gift of coming to Jesus, of believing in him, as we receive 
and embrace his life, his love, his truth, his mercy, his goodness, his beauty. You know, today we can feast on God's word written as we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. In tangible ways, we can come to the Lord's table and eat the bread and the wine. Now, I know that not, not everything in, in these pages of the Bible are easy. I know that there are things about Jesus that we find enigmatic or hard or strange. God's Word, no doubt, would be easier to digest, more palatable to us if Jesus had said, love your friends, do good to those who are kind to you, bless those who treat you well, and praise for those and pray for those who compliment you. If Jesus had said that, then feeding on him would be like an all-you-can-eat buffet at your favorite restaurant. We might prefer it if Jesus had answered their questions about what they should do to have eternal life with a list of five things that they could go off and check off and achieve. German theologian Rudolf Boltmann said this, a man finds his true being not in what he himself achieves, but in submission to what God works. He finds it, that is to say, in what by faith he allows to happen to himself. I began this morning asking why you were really here this morning. Let me close by going back to that question. And whatever your reason for being here, please hear this invitation to you today. Jesus, the bread of life, invites you to dine with him. It's an invitation from God to come to Jesus so that you will never be spiritually hungry again. As we saw in verse 36, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This invitation is extended to everyone. Jesus is that bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never be hungry. Whoever comes to him will never be thirsty. Come and believe. However you came in here this morning, and for whatever reasons, I pray that you will not leave here without coming to Jesus and feeding on the bread of life. If your deepest needs, those longings of your soul, are to be met, then pray what the crowd said in verse 34. It's about the only good thing they said. Sir, give us this bread always. Pray that. Amen.